Would you be able to continue when you are met with disappointing results, when you are met with, with opposition? Serving God is difficult. It's not a cakewalk. It requires sacrifice on our part. And sometimes we don't get the result that we were praying for and that we were expecting. Okay, let's all turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And may I ask you all to stand. We'll just read these two verses out loud together. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 to 15. Let's read this out loud together. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You may now be seated. Thank you. Now today is Grandparents' Day. Now, Father's Day and Mother's Day, those two days are celebrated annually. But it's interesting to note that Grandparents' Day is rarely acknowledged and, and it's a day that most people don't even know exists. Now, it's kind of sad since grandparents are, I believe, very precious people in many of our lives. I didn't have the privilege of meeting all four of my, my grandparents. My grandfather from my mother's side, um, he, he passed away when I was still very young. Although, when I went back to the Philippines in 2019, a lot of people said that I was the spitting image of my grandfather, so that's the only thing I really know about my grandfather, but he was very kind from what I hear about him. But I did have the privilege of meeting my other three grandparents and have fond memories with each and every single one of them. But as I I was writing this sermon and thinking about the, the value that grandparents had in my life, I remember all of the time I spent with each of them. I remember the various lessons that they taught me through their example. Now, grandparents, they don't do a lot of teaching in terms of, you know, oral lessons. They're not giving you vocal, they're not teaching you outright. But it's from observing their life that you can learn from them. My grandmother from my dad's side was someone who I didn't get to spend the most time with. But I remember that she was always a peacemaker. The siblings, the four of us, we like to bicker. We like to argue. And it was always when we're in the van together that we like to bicker. It was like a, there's something about being in a car together for long periods of time that start up arguments. But we would, we would get into these fights, these arguments. And it was always my grandmother who would say, stop fighting. And my grandmother had a very rare ability of being able to calm me down with just a touch. She would touch me on my shoulder and say, meaning don't get angry. And with just a touch and with just a short word, all the anger in me just dissipates. The power of a grandparent. She had a sweet and loving spirit. And her passing away was still one of the, the saddest memories that I had in, in recent years. My grandfather from my dad's side was a, a very happy man. He always had a big smile on his face, and he just enjoyed life wherever he went. I remember when he first came to Canada, we, they visited for a couple months, and I think almost very frequently, he would step outside into the streets, and you know, he would do the, the grandfather's walk. He would just go like this, and then he would just walk around smiling at people. You know, very rarely do we look at people in the eyes now, and we, 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 we make eye contact and stare with them. 
But my grandfather was just very happy, always smiling. He was always calm, always slow to speak, and rarely did I see him upset. But it was also my grandfather who had a big impact on me as a, as a pastor-to-be. When I, at a time when I was wavering whether I should continue to go into full-time ministry, to continue my pastoral training, it was my grandfather who told me to keep going. He encouraged me that it is worth all the time, all that effort. Keep going, Anak. And he's not, I'm not the son, obviously, but he called me that. He encouraged me to keep preaching at a time when I was doubting whether I should continue. And he himself was a very faithful man who preached the word whenever he was given the opportunity to do so. But with my grandmother and my grandfather from my dad's side, it hurts when you think about the fact that they're no longer here. But it's a great joy thinking, knowing that when we die, when I die, I get to reunite with both of my grandparents. And my grandmother from my mom's side was practically a second mother to me. She took care of my siblings and I while my parents worked abroad in Arizona. I remember she visited Canada for a couple months. And every single morning, I would have an omelet waiting for me on the counter. You know why? It just only took her... The first time she made an omelet, I told her, Lola, you make the best omelets ever. And ever since that day, she always made the exact same omelet for me every single morning. She was incredibly caring. Never, rarely complaining to us, her grandchildren, but she was always caring and taking care of her practical needs. Suffice it to say, I learned, I learned a lot of life lessons from the three grandparents that I met. Lessons that they taught me and lessons that I observed from them. Grandparents can teach a lot to their grandchildren. Now Paul and Timothy would agree with this statement as well. In the Bible, it says that Timothy's faith was the product of his grandmother's teaching. Look with me again in the, the verse, uh, uh, just a couple of chapters back in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, it says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in who? In thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eudes, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So from this verse, we find that Timothy's Christian heritage all began with his grandmother. His grandmother was the first generation in their family who got saved, who trusted in the Lord and accepted Jesus into her heart. Grandma Lois then taught it to her daughter Eunice. And it seems that both Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice both had active roles in shaping Timothy to become the man that he was. Their influence and teaching gave Timothy a solid foundation as a Christian young man. And now as a grown adult in ministry, Timothy was steeped in, in a full-time pastoral role. He has been faithful in serving the Lord. And Paul, as he writes to the younger Timothy, charges him with this command, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. The, the main part of that command being, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. Ever since he was a little kid, he was taught Scripture by his mother and by his grandmother Lois. Ever since he was a kid, he had knowledge of, of Scripture. 
He's been influenced since youth to go down the straight and narrow path, to go down the righteous path by his, his mother and grandmother. But the most important thing now is for him to learn to continue down that path. And so let's open a word of prayer before we enter the main body. Heavenly Father, we thank Lord for tonight and for all of those who, are, who faithfully attended this evening service. Pray that you bless them through your word. Pray that you enable me, empower my voice, Lord, and help me to preach your word without um, any strain on my voice. And I just pray that, again, we will just be blessed by the important truth that we find here in 2 Timothy. I pray this all in your name. Amen. At times, continuing is very difficult to do. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I was trying to look for a, uh, an illustration, the topic of continuing. There's a lot that came to my mind. But the one that really stuck out was a hike that I went on last year, the infamous hike called Panorama Ridge. Now, anyone who knows me, I'm not much of a hiker. You know, I may go to the gym, but gym and hiking are not the same thing. They're very different. I'm a terrible hiker. And I'm, very, I'm really quite pathetic when it comes to the area of hiking. But I was persuaded by my girlfriend to go on this 12-hour round-trip hike. I shouldn't have done that, especially that it was coming right after VBS. Friday, we did the teardown, then we had the McDonald's, and two hours later, I was now hiking. So it was kind of crazy. <laughs> but eventually, you know, we were having fun on the way up. And there was a point in the hike when we were near the top that the, most of the group decided to stop. You know, it's, they, they couldn't, they didn't, had, they had no more energy. So they, most of the group just stopped at this very nice uh, photo op area. It wasn't the peak of the mountain, but it was still very close to the top. But as we were stopping, I saw that Tadala and another guy, I forgot his name, but Tadala and another man, they continued all the way. They kept going to the peak apart from the rest of the group. They wanted to get to the top and no one was going to stop them. So they continued on. And so I had a choice to make here in this instance. Should I just stop with the rest of the group or should I follow Tadala and the other guy? Well, I decided to keep following them. I've already gone this far. I don't feel like doing this hike ever again. And I might as well see this hike through to completion. See the, the hype up at the top. So I kept going. Now the last portion of this hike was incredibly steep and the snow at this point was quite deep. So each step that I took at this portion, it was taking a lot out of me. But I kept plodding along very slowly, but you know, surely I'll get there. But since most of the group stayed behind and Tadala and the other man was so far ahead of me, I was completely alone. And it, it really does a number on you mentally when you're completely alone with no one really to encourage you. So I was completely alone and the worst part was there was a thick fog near the top. In a race, the most encouraging thing is when you see the finish line because it gives you that final push. But at that, in this moment, I looked at the peak of the mountain and it was shrouded in fog and I didn't know how much further I had to keep walking. I didn't know how, long, how much longer it took me for me to finish. So I stopped, I took a breather for 20 minutes and I seriously contemplated my life, whether or not I should even continue this annoying hike. And all of a sudden, after I finish my 20-minute break, I see Daniel and Lance. They're coming up the mountain. They're doing a search and rescue for Tadala and the other guy. So they're coming up the mountain. And I was like, finally, I can, I can just go along with Daniel and Lance. And, and th that the company will just give me the boost I need to finish this hike. The thing I didn't account for is Daniel and Lance are very good hikers. Well, in comparison to me, at least. So I tried keeping up with them, I tried keeping pace with them, but eventually the, the distance between myself and the two of them just kept getting wider and wider. And then I started to become really lightheaded. You know when you're squatting really heavy and you're, you see those stars? I started to feel that. 
And so I told that to Daniel, and he, Daniel recommended that I head back down. He didn't tell me to go back down. He recommended me to head back down. So I still had the choice. Should I push through and see the beautiful view that was at the top, or should I head back down? I had a choice to make, and I chose to head back down. Mind you, heading back down was much more fun than walking up. You get to slide down, and it was, just, it was very fun. But at the time, I felt relief. I felt relieved that I don't have to keep, you know, going higher and higher. My, my journey to the top is done. I don't have to worry about trying to, uh, to, to persist. But the, the longer I, f- I stayed down below, and I, the longer I waited for Tadala and the rest of them to come down from the peak, I started to feel really disappointed in myself. I put so much effort into this hike, and I still fell very short from the top. I felt incredibly disappointed that I didn't continue. And after it all, after the hike, Daniel told me, just just kind of a a finishing kick to me, really. He told me that if I had persisted for 15 more minutes, I would have reached the top with them. 15 more minutes! I already spent close to seven hours hiking this thing up, and I only had to spend 15 more minutes. But, you know, looking back, I think it was wise for me to go back down. I don't know. Maybe. I just say that to make myself feel better. But continuing isn't always easy. At times, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and many times, the easier choice is for us to go back down, to stop, and give up. And tonight, I wanted to charge everyone here to continue on in three specific areas in our Christian walks. And the first one we'll find in our, our text passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 15. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The first point being, continue in doctrine, in sound doctrine. At GBC, we don't believe that it is only Baptists that will be in heaven. We don't, we don't, share that, we don't carry that belief. We believe that anyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, repent from their sins, and ask God for forgiveness, will be those who have been given eternal life. It's not just Baptists, meaning people from other denominations can also get to heaven if they accept Christ. We believe that they can get saved. But sometimes our attention turns to other denominations, and we start thinking, If that denomination, the people in that denomination can get saved too, why can't we start adopting some of their stances on doctrines? Why can't we start adopting some of their standards? And maybe in return, we'll get higher attendance in our church. I mean, at the end of the day, all of these denominations have the possibility of getting saved. Why can't we change some of the things up, our doctrines, our standards, in order, uh, the, 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 the the, the return being, we get more people coming to church, and ultimately, the possibility of more people getting saved. The idea behind this thought is well-meaning. It stems from what? It stems from a desire to see lost souls saved. Because I believe that as Christians, we ought to have that desire. We ought to desire lost people coming to church, hearing the gospel, and getting saved. So that thought stems from that desire. But we ought never to compromise our doctrine and also our standards in order to reach the lost. In Timothy's time, there were lots of people compromising doctrine in order to please others. 
namely the Judaizers. These Christians thought that if they just took the gospel and attached the Mosaic law, obeisance to the Mosaic law on top of the gospel, that it would please the Orthodox Jews. And there is a possibility that what they did pleased the Orthodox Jews. But the problem was, although they pleased some men, they ultimately displeased God because they chose to muddy the gospel with their works. It's tempting to not continue upholding the doctrines and the standards we grew up and learned. When every other denomination is saying, those Baptists, they're too fundamental. They're too traditional. They're too old-fashioned. The way they do things is not successful. It's not going to bear any results. You need to change things up. It's tempting for us to let go of doctrines and standards when we hear that. We think that if we just started preaching that God has absolutely no issues with the LGBT crowd, we'll probably get more people from that crowd to visit our church. We see that with a lot of progressive churches. They preach that, and a lot of the people in that crowd praise them for it. If we started preaching that God could be a heavenly father or could be a heavenly mother, maybe more people will fill in the, the seats. You see, a lot of people, they are trying to fight for this to fight for the fact that God could be a heavenly mother or father. And they're fighting really for this. And so maybe if we started preaching this, more people would join our church, fill in their seats. Maybe if we started preaching, sorry, maybe if we started preaching that the Old Testament was useless and we no longer needed to follow and read it, sure, we'll probably get more people to praise our church. If we just threw away and discarded the Old Testament and kept only the New Testament and only preached from the New Testament, we'll definitely get more people joining our church because there are a lot of people out there who can accept Jesus Christ of the New Testament but can't accept the God of the Old Testament. So if we threw away the Old Testament, surely there will be some more strangers entering our church, joining our church. Now how about instead of changing our doctrines, we can just change our standards? If we just started having more concerts at church, if we started changing our way of worship to be a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more exciting, a little bit more jumpy-jumpy, we can probably get more youth in our, in our crowd. If we make the services more casual, we're bound to double or even triple our attendance. And we start thinking of all of these things that we can alter with our doctrine, with our standards, in order to bring in more people to our church. Yes, it's possible that if we did change certain doctrines, and if we did change certain standards that we've upheld for long as Baptists, that a church may receive more people, that a church will, that more of our seats may be filled by the people in the city. But the question is always, as Christians, the choices we're making, the things we're deciding to change, is it so that we can please society, so that we can please men? Or are we doing those things to please God? Are we living to please God? In Colossians 3.23, it says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto who? Not unto men. As to the Lord, and not unto men. Those who live to please men will inevitably change their standards and their doctrines to fit the times. Whatever it is that, that society is spouting, whatever, whatever it is that society is preaching and making popular, People who live to please men will change their doctrines to fit what society is talking about. 
But those who live to please God will continue to uphold the doctrines that they've been taught and that they have learned, even if it costs them verbal persecution, even if, if it causes them to be called old-fashioned and, and boring. People who want to please God will continue upholding these doctrines that we've treasured. Now, how can I trust? Pastor Ivan, how can I trust that Baptists have the right doctrine and not the other denominations? How can you be so sure that it is the Baptists who carry the right doctrine? We all have Bibles. We're, we're, not, keeping, we're not keeping the research secret. We all have Bibles. Bibles are meant to be read and Bibles are meant to be studied. And I believe that if we all take the time to diligently study our Bibles, we'll find that the doctrines that we teach that the doctrines that we are upholding match what the Bible teaches, match what we find in Scripture. And of course, standards are more subjective. We will, we will have Bible verses to support those principles, but again, it, it's determined from person to person. But with doctrine, we have the Bible that we can study and we can learn from. Just as Paul charged Timothy to continue upholding sound doctrine, we ought to continue to do the same. We can't, keep th- we can't be on that train of thought that if we just change certain things, we'll probably get more people. We can't live to please men. We can't serve God with the intention of just trying to please society. We have to live trying to please Almighty God. Continue in doctrine. And now let's get to our second point. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19. <clears throat> Brother Tadal, can you just... Sorry. First Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Let's start at verse 1 here. <clears throat> and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah just came away from one of the most amazing victories in the Bible. He had a contest with the prophets of Baal. Through him, fire was, uh, was called down from the sky. God just showed Ahab, the prophets of Baal, and the Israelites something miraculous that day. The prophets of Baal, they did all they can, screaming, shouting, lashing, and lacerating themselves with, 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 with shards and drawing blood in order to gain the attention of their false god Baal. But they did this for so long, but it was to no avail. And when it was finally Elijah's turn to call upon his god to bring down fire from heaven, it only really took him one, it took him one try. He called upon God, God sent a, a fire from the sky and consumed the sacrifice and everything around it, even the moat that was surrounding the sacrifice, it was consumed. That was the power of God. This great display of power was an irrefutable uh, 
act that proved to the people that there was only one true God, and He is the God that Israel serves. What an incredible victory. Thank you. Elijah, at this point, must have felt like he was on cloud nine. Amazing victory. After this, surely the people of Israel will change their stance on God. After seeing this feat, this miracle, this fire from the sky, surely all of Israel will repent and turn from their wicked ways and follow God. I'm sure that, that, that's what Elijah was thinking. But what happened? Was that the result of that great miracle? Sure, there were probably a good number of citizens that returned to God. They saw that feat and they said, you know what, Baal might not be really the one. I'll, I'll go back to God. Sure, maybe a couple did that. But the leadership was ultimately unaffected. And if the leadership is unaffected, Ahab and Jezebel, the nation as a whole will be unaffected as well. Because it starts with leadership. It doesn't matter if a few, few of the Israelites are returning back to God because of the, what happened there at the mount. If the leadership is still very wicked, is still promoting Baal, is still doing all sorts of bad things, the rest, the majority of society will continue to follow their example. So not only was the leadership in the country for, as a whole unaffected, but now Jezebel was out to hunt down Elijah. Elijah had killed all the prophets of Baal. Now Jezebel was wanting revenge, wanted to kill Elijah now. She was seething with rage that all of her precious prophets were killed, so she initiated a manhunt for Elijah. All of that effort, all of the bravery and courage that he spent, all of that work that Elijah did, well, you know, through the power of God, it availed to nothing. Elijah did just as God had asked, yet the nation remained unchanged. And on top of that, his life was in grave danger. Elijah's grief resulted in him even telling God, it's better if I'm dead. He desired to die because of such, a, such an unexpected uh, um, result from his ministry. He no longer wanted to live, and he no longer wanted to continue. Continue what, exactly? He no longer wanted to continue the ministry that God has called him to as a prophet. And we've often criticized Elijah at this story. But the more I read the account of Elijah as a whole, the more I believe some of us can relate with the prophet. Sometimes we put a lot of effort in our ministries, especially those who are leaders in ministries. We put a lot of effort. We put a lot of planning. Maybe only to be met with no results, no blessings, no praises to be sung after the event passes. We did all this planning. Maybe, maybe we planned for months, planned for weeks, for this very big special event for our specific ministry, and the, the, the event come, uh, rolls around and no one shows up. We put all of this effort into planning this, but no one shows up. Or maybe only a few show up from the, the pool of people that was invited, and we get discouraged. That is not the result that we've been praying for. That is not the result that we were asking God for. We're left disappointed. And it is when we receive disappointing results that it becomes incredibly hard for us sometimes to continue in ministry. Pastor White, 
often tells the church stories of the financial struggles and the ministry disappointments that he had to go through when he was younger uh, and earlier on in his pastoral years. And when, oftentimes when Pastor White is telling the story to the congregation, I'm sat there thinking, if I was in Pastor White's position in this particular moment, would I be able to continue in ministry? Or would I have given up? Because the things that Pastor White had to go through are, are amazing. That he, he was able to, by the grace of God, endure those things. And I think to myself, could I have continued in ministry if, was, if I was placed in that exact same position or that financial hardship? Would you be able to continue when you are met with disappointing results, when you are met with, with opposition? Serving God is difficult. It's not a cakewalk. It requires sacrifice on our part. And sometimes we don't get the result that we were praying for and that we were expecting. But the importance is getting back up and continuing. I wasn't there last week, last, uh, last Sunday evening, to hear Pastor Tim's message, but he preached on this topic of getting back up when you've experienced failure, when you've experienced uh, uh, an offset to your plan. It's getting back up and continuing to serve God despite those things that, you, that, you are, that you, has knocked you down. Continue to minister. Continue to serve God. And a big help is to serve God with a proper attitude. Again, heralding back to the first point, we must be serving in order to please God rather than men. Because when we start to serve in order to gain the praise of men, the moment we encounter uh, opposition or discouragement, we will give up. But when you are living and, and you're trying to serve because you want to please God, no matter what type of hardship gets heaped upon you in ministry, you will learn to be able to even say, thank, God, thank you, Lord, for giving this to me so that I may grow. Serve with a proper attitude. Serve so that God may be glorified through your ministry instead of yourself being glorified through the ministry. Purpose in your heart to keep going and to continue serving in ministry, even if ministry isn't always glorious. Do we always have uh, church birthday attendance every single Sunday? 250 people every single Sunday? Is that what we always get? No, it's not always so grand. Ministry isn't always so grand. Sometimes it's little things. But we have to keep serving God even if ministry isn't always just full of sunshine and, and rainbows. Even if it's not always met with great victory. Continue to serve God not only when you're up on the mountaintop, but also when you're down in the valley. 1 Corinthians 15:58. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now last point here as I close up. Now, I don't know about you, but our society and mainstream media are making it harder and harder to love others. If you look around in social media, you'll find people saying, 10 reasons why you should hate this celebrity. 10 reasons why you should hate this politician. 10 reasons why you should hate the social media influencers. 10 reasons why this person needs to get canceled. And there's a lot of this hate being thrown around. There's so much hate-filled criticism being broadcasted in media wholesale, and the result is now a hate-filled society. Canada once had the reputation of being an incredibly friendly, incredibly polite, and courteous country. And that may be true in some part of Canada, but in, here in the Lower Mainland, 
We're often met with scowls, mean comments, angry people. It's no surprise that Vancouver is now being known worldwide as a very selfish city. There's a lot of people going into social media and saying they moved into Vancouver and they were surprised by the lack of care in the community. No one really cares for anybody but themselves in Vancouver. That is the society we live in now. No one really loves others except for the people in their close circle. And it's ironic to me because our society more than ever has promoted love. But anybody who doesn't subscribe to their ideals and their, their mentality are hated upon. If you don't get with the program, you're going to receive hate, even though they promote love all the time. But we know that as Christians, we ought to be loving. There are many verses, a myriad of verses that, say, that command Christians to be loving towards not just their friends, but to enemies. But in this environment that we find ourselves living in, loving others is quite difficult to do. Especially to love them as, as, as how God loves us. But we can learn a lot from Hosea's story. Hosea was given a unique command by God to marry a woman of whoredoms, a harlot, if you will. It's a very unusual command. If, if, you, if most people re- receive that command, they would probably be very hesitant to obey it. It feels like I'm being set up here. But Hosea was obedient to God's command and he married a woman named Gomer. Hosea and Gomer had two beautiful children, and they lived happily ever after. Until Gomer was bored. Until Gomer got bored and said that this marriage life, this happy life, I'm done with it. I don't want these two children anymore. Hosea, I don't want you anymore either. I'm going to go back to being a harlot. I'm going to go be with other men again. That's what's fun. That's what really excites me. So again, we don't really know what, what, led to, what led up to this, but Gomer eventually decides to break the happy marriage that they had, the happy family environment they had. She broke it all off and left it behind in order to go back to being a harlot. Imagine being in Hosea's shoes at this moment. I asked the, uh, the Sunday school teens, how would you react if you're a wife? And all of them were like, I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. But I said, that's why I told you, imagine. But imagine being in Hosea's shoes at this moment. Imagine the grief, the sadness, the anger that you would feel if your significant other did this. If your significant other decided to leave you and your children in order to live this sort of lifestyle. Imagine that the amount of anger you would have for your significant other. I think I'd wager that I, most of us would, would be so angry at this person that we would purpose in our, our minds that we would never forgive them no matter what they do, even if they come crawling back to me, I will never forgive you for leaving me and your children behind in order to be a harlot, in order to sell your body. I will never forgive you. I think that is the mentality and the mindset that we would have if we were put in Hosea's position. And most of us would give up on Gomer. Write her off as a lost cause. It's her life. She can mess it up any way she wants to. But look what happens next in Hosea chapter 3. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord, toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. God commanded Hosea to... Get back Gomer, to get Gomer back. 
No, again, if we were commanded by God after what Gomer did to us, we would take a step back and say, whoa, I don't want to do that. Buy her back so she can just be unfaithful, me to, unfaithful to me all over again and break my heart all over again. No, thank you, Lord. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to set myself up for failure again. But that's not what Hosea did. Hosea, it says, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlots, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Hosea obeys, buys back and redeems Gomer. And not only that, he swears faithfulness to be faithful to Gomer. Despite all of the unfaithfulness that she showed towards him, Hosea promises her, I will also be faithful to you. No matter what you've done to me, I will continue to love you the way a husband ought to love his wife. I will continue to love you. Because of his love for the Lord, Hosea was able to love Gomer despite her infidelity. And we would look at this story and say, and we would classify Gomer to be unlovable. Gomer, terrible human being. Did all of that in order, to, in order to be a harlot again? Willing to leave all that behind and breaking her family's heart in order to be a harlot? Terrible human being. Unforgivable. Unlovable. And we're, again, we're quick to label these things to people that don't live the way they ought to. And yet, Hosea continued to love her as her husband. This world is often very hard and almost impossible to love, just like Gomer. You know, if everybody... It's like my grandfather, just all smiles all the time. It would be very easy to make friends. If, I, if I'm walking down the street and everybody I pass by is smiling and saying, Hey, how are you? It would be very easy to love those people. If everybody in the gym looked at me and said, Hi, how are you? You're looking good. But no, you're met with scowls. You're met with mean faces. You're met with angry people. And it's hard to love society sometimes. It's hard to love the unsaved sometimes. And oftentimes also the saved. But like Hosea, we must learn to love the people of the world despite their harshness, despite their mean attitudes, and despite their cynical outlook on Christianity. We have to learn to love, and it's very difficult. And we often wonder, how can we do that? That's an impossible task. You expect me to love someone who hates my guts just because I'm a Christian? How can I possibly love them the way Christ loves us? And the only way we can ever come close to accomplishing this goal is to continue loving God more every single day. Continue to grow in love with God. Fall in love with God every single day. And we have a great series, How to Be More Intimate with, with God, every Sunday morning. And we're receiving good tips on how to become more intimate with God. Fall in love with God every single day because the more you fall in love with God, the more His love is infectious the more we want to spread God's love to other people, the more we are able to love others. If you want to love the unlovable, just like Hosea did with Gomer, love God first and foremost. Grow in love every single day. We learn tonight to continue, even when it's difficult to do so. Continue to uphold sound doctrine. Continue to serve God in ministry, 
even when you're not always met with victory and success, and continue to love God so that you may be, to a- may be able to love others as you ought to. Don't turn back just because some form of opposition stands in your way, but continue on and push through to growth. In the song sung by the choir this morning, two lines stood out to me. In the, the, the song, Step Into the Water, there is victory for the Christian who walks the narrow way. There has been a prize appointed for the soul who does not stray. If you push through and continue despite the opposition, despite the hardships you face in your Christian life, you'll be rewarded with a beautiful view from the mountaintop, with blessings so innumerable to count. And though we will be rewarded here on earth with great blessings, it will never compare to the blessings that we will be given in heaven if we choose to continue on in ministry, in our service. Folks, it is worth our while to continue on for God. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.